grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dorothy Sayers once pointed out that there are two kinds of laws in our society. There's the law of the stop sign, and there's the law of the fire. The law of the stop sign is a law that says that the traffic at a certain intersection is too heavy, and as a result, the police department or the city council decides to erect a stop sign. They also determine the penalty for violating the stop sign. 25 or 50 or whatever they determine would be a reasonable deterrent. If too many people are running the stop sign, they can always raise the fine. The police department or the city council controls the law the stop sign. But then there's the law of the fire. And the law of the fire says if you put your hand in fire, you'll get burned. Now imagine that all the legislations of all the nations of the entire world gathered together in one great assembly and they voted unanimously that from here on out, fire would not burn people. Well, the first man or woman who walks out of the assembly and puts their hand in the fire will discover that the law of the fire is different. Bound up in the nature of the fire is the penalty for abusing it. Part of God's created order. It is God's law. Paul has plenty to say about God's law in our reading this morning, from Romans chapter 7. Verse 12, he declares, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Writing in the 5th century, Theodoret, a seer, observed, The commandment is holy because it teaches what is right. It is God's Torah, in the fullest sense of that term. God's design, his blueprint for all creation and the interactions of creation, whereby he sustains and preserves all things. Theodoret continues, The commandment is just because it pronounces the correct sentence for those who break it. The same fire cooks our dinner or burns down the house, depending upon how we use it. And finally, the commandment is also good because it prepares eternal life for those who keep it. This last statement made great in our ears as Luther's, but even Luther said in the small catechism that God, God promises grace and every blessing to all those who keep these commandments. And while the law is holy and righteous and good, that is not good news. We confessed earlier that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that we cannot free ourselves from our sinful condition. Paul readily concurs, giving us a personal example, writing about the goodness of the law. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Coveting is kind of an Old Testament, New King James-sounding word that we don't use in common speech very much. The original is more simply desire. Desire, we understand, and it's a great example of how sin works in us in at least two ways. First, it's a very common sin. And second, it is not always easily recognized. Let me explain. We all have needs, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual needs that we feel and know in our being. Our Heavenly Father knows this as well, as we confess in the small catechism. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this bodily life. And all this he does out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. But real needs very easily grow into desire, and hence into the sin of covetousness. 
I need food. I desire prime rib. God gives, but I want more and better, and I want it sooner and more often. Paul laments, but when the commandment of God came, sin came alive, and I died. The Greek word is actually there is something like, it sprang to life. One Luther commentator offers this insight. Once, having become conscious of the prohibition, the sin took hold of it and stirred Paul to all kinds of new violations. By means of this poker in the hands of the sin, the slumbering fire in Paul was stirred to shoot out all its flames. It's like prodding a sleeping lion. It's the same for you and for me. The very prohibition inflames our desire for what is denied. Draw a line in the sand, and our sinful nature urges our foot across if not our whole being. Covetousness, or desires, is a driving force in our society. Stop by your local Barnes & Noble now that the brick and mortar stores are opening and, and cruise the self-help aisles for a little bit. Packed with titles for self-help, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, all in the name of self-realization. It's me first, and let the rest fend as they are able. Have you ever watched the feeding frenzy when the crab pots are pulled for the last time? Yeah. Leftover bait pulled from the traps are thrown into the air, and the table is set. One lucky seagull grabs the cast off only to be dive bombed by three more. It's the scene from Saving Nemo played out into a screaming chorus of Mine, 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 mine. When is it that makes us behave like seagulls? John Stowell calls it the Eve factor. He writes, several years ago, my wife and I moved out of Chicago to the western suburbs to be near our grandkids. We got this little plot of land and we built what we thought was our dream house. It was not over the top by any means, but it was nice. And we liked how it looked from the curb. We liked how it lived on the inside. It was far more than we deserved, and we, and we really liked our little house. I hate to admit this though, but six months later, after we built our house, I was driving through a beautiful neighborhood and saw a house that caught my attention. Colors, the architecture, the lot, the location. It all had a big wow factor for me. My very first thought was, boy, I wish I had that house. Have you ever, ever wondered, what's wrong with us? It's the Eve factor in our lives. We were born with it. It's deeply embedded in our spiritual DNA. It's just one more proof of our sinfulness, as if we needed more. What was it that drew Eve's heart away from God in Genesis 3? What was it that seduced her into the material world and Satan's clutches? She wanted more. What she had, although it was awesome and satisfying, wasn't enough. In fact, for her, God wasn't enough. She was willing to do anything for more, even if it meant turning her back on God. At its core, greed or desire is a lack of contentment with God and with what He has provided for us. So it was for Eve and for Stolo, so it is for you and for me. Not to covet, not to desire is holy, righteous, and good, as Paul says. But we confess in our order of compline, we have sinned by my fault, my own fault, my own most grievous fault. We are, well, married to it. And that's the good news of Paul's chapter 7 of Romans. The law, the law of marriage applies only until death. For a married woman, Paul writes, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. 
But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. You must admit, Paul's illustration here, this marriage illustration, has caused lots of confusion. Even Luther reads with Augustine, considering it allegorical. He suggests that, that three things are spoken of here. The soul is the woman, the passions of sin is the man, and the law is the law of the husband. Others have even questioned the propriety of Paul's analogy. But all these difficulties fade away as soon as we read it as an illustration, a parable with a single point of comparison. And the point is simply this. The occurrence of a death effects a decisive change with respect to the relationship under the law. It is ended. Job makes a similar point about death, liberating prisoners and slaves. They, quote, hear not the voice of their taskmaster. You and I stood under judgment. The law could not deliver us. In fact, it was the law that condemned us. To the Galatian churches, Paul wrote, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not buy, abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Key words here are for us, or more personally, for you. Christ became a curse for you. He is a sinner, even the chief of sinners. He bears the sins of Paul, the former blasphemer, persecutor, assaulter. He bears the sins of David, the adulterer and the murderer. He bears the sins of Peter, the one who denied him. He bears your sins, and he bears my sins. Luther observes, For unless he had taken upon himself my sins, your sins, and the sins of the entire world, the law would have had no right over him since it condemns only sinners and holds only them under a curse. Jesus stepped into my place, into your place. He became our sin. He received the just judgment for that sin. He died. And so we died, as Paul observes in our reading. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You and I were baptized into that body, Christ's body into the church. And in that body, we have died to the law. Truly, baptism into Christ's body brings death. And now, as the widow in Paul's illustration, you can be joined to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You are redeemed. Baptism into Christ's body also brings life, eternal life. Notice how Paul is never far from the resurrection in this section. This is the reason for our great hope. So as Luther, we ask, what does this mean? We die to the law, is it gone? Do we no longer read the law because we've been satisfied by Christ? By no means. It is still holy, it teaches us what is right. It is still just, but in Christ's death, its judgment has been paid. It is still good. It brings the promises of God. Now we read the law, not in fear, but in joy. Its demands no longer excite or inflame us. The poker that stirred up the fire of desire has become a shepherd's staff that guides us. Now we serve as Paul describes in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. 
In 2009, a, a new billboard went up in downtown Chicago. It got everybody's attention and stirred quite a bit of controversy. In big letters that read, Are you good without God? Millions are. It was put up by an organization called the, the Chicago Coalition for Reason. According to an article about the billboard of the Tribune, the coalition's coordinator said, quote, The billboard aims to hearten humanists, atheists, and agnostics who might feel isolated or misunderstood in their quest for alternatives to religious worldviews. Close quote. The billboard's question, though, does beg for an answer. Can a person who rejects God's very existence, let alone his authority, do good? Well, of course they can. They can be honest and kind, pay their taxes, give money to the poor. But from a Christian point of view, that misses the point. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. You guys remember him, right? The Tin Man's quest for what? He needed the heart. He wanted the heart. And when he finally got to talk to the wizard face to face, the wizard warned him that hearts can be broken. And Tin Man says, I want one anyway. And you remember what the wizard said? He said, back where I come from, there are men who do nothing all day except do good. They're called good deed doers. And their hearts are no bigger than yours, but they have one thing that you haven't got. God would say something similar to the good without God billboard people. He would say, when Christians do good deeds properly, their hearts are no bigger than yours, but they have one thing that you haven't got. And that one thing is found in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand. For us to do. We do the Father's will. We serve creation. Not out of compulsion. Not out of threats of punishment. The old way of the written code. Instead, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We serve because in Christ's death, we died to the law, that we might live to God. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.